I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Before uh, Bhantashanti, our, our abbot, left for his, his trip to Sri Lanka that he's on currently, he was telling me about some of the uh, locations, some of the, the temples, the monasteries that he helps oversee there in Sri Lanka. He was telling me of the various lands that these temples are on and the, the various groves and, and fragrant flowers that grow there, and he described what sounded very beautiful to me. I was particularly entranced with the idea of a, basically a, a grove of cinnamon trees. You know, we, we usually don't think about how cinnamon comes from the, the bark of, of trees in Sri Lanka. And, you know, and the, once the trees are big enough, they'll start harvesting some of the bark and, and turn that process that into the, the ground cinnamon that we, we enjoy in our food. And he was telling me how old some of these places are. Uh, one of the temples that he helps oversee is something like uh, 1,500 years old. And uh, I was amazed to, to hear that there, had, there was a temple that old that was still functioning today. You know, there was monastery grounds that still exist after so much time. You know, when you put it in perspective, that temple would have been founded roughly 1,100 years after the passing of the Buddha himself, or rather during the lifetime uh, of the Buddha himself. And so here's this place that acts as sort of this uh, point in history between the Buddha's lifetime and our present moment. That this temple is as ancient to us as the lifetime of the Buddha and the beginning of the Sangha would have been to the people who founded that temple. And it made me think about you know, history and, and legacy and, and what that means for those of us uh, practicing Buddhism today in the United States, which as a country is very young and we don't have a whole lot of, let's say, uh, buildings or, or monuments that themselves are thousands of, of years old. We have things that are maybe a couple, couple centuries old tops. But that history, though short, is still significant, complicated and complex, but significant. And in that history is also the history of what is perhaps emerging as American Buddhism, whatever that's going to look like. You know, American Buddhism being the, you know, the melting pot sort of scenario that a lot of things in America end up being. We have many traditions, traditions that exist here in, in IBMC. And so because of that, I started thinking of the history of IBMC itself. And it is recent history. Uh, this, this temple, this meditation center, was founded in, in 1970, which is still well within the, the lifetimes of, of people who are alive today, but not for me. You know, I was born in the 80s. So that means that the founder of this temple, the first abbot of this temple, Venerable Tiktianan, is someone for who for me is, a, is an historical figure. Uh, 
It's not someone, he's not someone I ever met. He's not someone I ever conversed with. He has existed for me as someone in pictures and in written word. I've never even he hear, heard a recording of, of his voice. And yet, despite all of that, I am in many ways indebted to his existence and the work that he had, has done to create this place, to create IBMC. And in terms of, of Buddhism and its history, I myself and anyone who is, who is living here, residing here, and practicing here is a part of his legacy, let's say, what he's left behind. And so because of all that, I, I wanted to get to know him better, Venerable Tiktenan. I wanted to perhaps understand what I might have learned had I been a, a student of his during his, his lifetime before he passed away in 1980. And so I ended up turning to this one book that had been sitting on my bookshelf for quite a while. Uh, this is the book uh, Zen Philosophy and Zen Practice, well, Zen Philosophy Zen Practice, written by Venerable Tiktenan. It was written in 1975. And so even this book is in its own way a kind of history, something that existed uh, you know, roughly uh, a decade before I was born and five years before Venerable Tiktenan would pass away. And early on in my time coming to IBMC, I bought this book because I knew it was written by the founder of IBMC and I thought, oh, it'd be good to have this. But because of the sort of ecumenical and international side of IBMC, I myself have never been, at least in my time here at IBMC, a, pr uh, a practicer, let's say, a practitioner of, of Zen Buddhism. In my time here, I've been practicing uh, Theravada Buddhism, specifically the forest tradition, what's known as a kamatana, you know, the, the place of work, if we translate it from Pali, more or less. And that's the, that's the tradition that I come from and what I bring here into what I share at IBMC. So I, when I bought this, looked through it a few times and thought, oh, well, this is interesting and sort of kept it as this, you know, reminder of, of the founder of IBMC and, and its traditions, but then just left it on the bookshelf. So recently in looking through it, I at first was mostly just looking at it in terms of, of historical value, looking at the, the little bit of history on on Zen itself, looking at a bit of history on Venerable Tiktianan, and looking at the photos. And the photos are actually very, um, for me, uh, heartwarming because they show a community that was very vibrant and very active. And in that same ecumenical sense, from the very beginning, Venerable Tiktianan was bringing in people from multiple traditions. There are pictures of ordinations that happened right here where we're sitting that show him bringing in Mahayana monks and nuns and Theravada monks and having them converse and share in the Dhamma together. So it was pretty heartwarming. And then in going through the book itself and the actual contents of the lessons, some of the stuff um, are not things that, that I would agree with in my interpretation of, of Buddhism, you know, not just in terms of you know, Mahayana, but Zen and everything else, you know, the, the sort of uh, philosophical points. 
But I, I did notice that there were plenty of things that I did agree with, things that I thought were very important, in fact, things that uh, were universal to all of, of Buddhism, I think, you know, sort of like a, a pan-Buddhist thing that many of us could agree on, but also just uh, deeply fundamental in terms of their importance. And uh, one of those sections of the book that I wanted to focus on today is one where Venerable Thich is talking about what he called the three essentials of Zen practice. And uh, for me, because of, of where I come from with my experience of Buddhism, uh, I'm not looking at it as the essentials of Zen practice, but really the essentials of Buddhist practice, period. I really do think that these are the things he's talking about are things that are important to all of us, regardless of what, uh, let's say, particular flavor of Buddhism um, is the one that we enjoy the most. And so I think back to when this book was written, and written in 1975, in a time when Venerable Tiktanan was still very much uh, looking at this, this American landscape of, of the you know, mid-1970s and kind of making sense of all these Westerners that were coming through the doors, not only of IBMC, but even the classes he was teaching at a university nearby. I want to say UCLA, but I could be wrong. And he was teaching to, to Westerners who were very young, a lot of them college students, just brimming with excitement, uh, want, uh, wanting to understand Buddhism, enjoying the novelty and perhaps, perhaps the exoticism of it. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is, is reading his words, coming across his bemusement at it all, just sort of wondering, like, it's so interesting the way, the way they're approaching this, the way they try to understand this, and perhaps the way that they don't understand it, and the way they don't really stick around to see the results. And I think that that's what inspired him to even write about these essentials in the first place. You know, he, he says at the very beginning of this chapter that the interest in Zen Buddhism is increasing rapidly in the United States and other Western countries, especially among the young people. But while many are drawn to Zen at the beginning, not many follow through to the end. Why is this? Because their interest was not built upon a secure foundation. Lacking a secure foundation, many give up their pursuit of Zen halfway. Their interest becomes merely inquisitive. It comes and it goes, easy in, easy out, like changing clothes. In order to persist in the path of Zen, it is necessary at the outset to know and to cultivate the three essentials of Zen practice. And then I'll start getting into those in a, in a moment. But listening to his words, I mean, this is someone who was, who was writing on these concerns in Americans and American Buddhism in 1975. And what he wrote, I feel, is something that could have been written yesterday, could have been written today, just in terms of um, the, the sometimes casual way that we can sort of dabble into a, a spiritual tradition, a spiritual experience, look at it as simply an experience, and then, you know, kind of get a taste of it for a little bit and go, all right, yeah, this seems, that, that was cool, and then move on to the next thing. And then not really seeing um, the benefits of, of what a path has to offer. So I can imagine that Venerable Tiktianan, much like many of us here today, we, we sit here and we have the door open and some people come and then some people go. And it can seem a bit like a, like a revolving door. Some people don't come back. 
and we can ask ourselves why. Um, and I do think that what Tiktanan is saying or is going to say here is a bit of, a bit about that the the kind of attitude with which we come to a spiritual practice, whatever that spiritual practice may be, but in this lens of looking at Buddhism, how do we approach Buddhism? Do we approach it as simply, you know, a curiosity? Do we approach it as a bit of exoticism or simply as a philosophy with fun talking points that we can bring up in discussion at a, like a coffee shop or something? Or do we really see it as, as a life path, something transformative, something that can really make a huge impact in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us? So the essentials that Thich Nhat Hanh thought are as important act as a foundation. And that first foundation that he wants to talk about is what he calls uh, the first step is great faith. He gives the Japanese for this, the Daishin Kon. And I think it's interesting that for all of these, he gives the Japanese term. Despite himself being a Vietnamese monk, I think even in, the t in that time in the 70s, he was pretty aware of just how interested Americans were in, in Zen Buddhism, but how they viewed Zen Buddhism as like a strictly Japanese practice. And so I think a lot of them came expecting stuff to be in Japanese, and so he has a lot of Japanese in the book. But yes, this, this first essential thing, this, this quality that we bring to our practice, is great faith. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh tried to be sensitive to the fact that Westerners, in leaving perhaps the religions of their, of their birth, the religions of their childhood, and coming to something like Buddhism, would be perhaps a bit trepidatious around faith, and, and look at faith in terms of, of uh, faith in something external to themselves, faith in a savior, essentially, faith in perhaps a, a deity who's going to uh, be their shelter, their protection, to be their, their sort of guard, but also their source of, of what is good and, and what is holy and what is pure, um, the source of like perhaps all their gifts and, and blessings, let's say. And so Thich Nhat Hanh wanted to make clear that when he was talking about faith, he wasn't talking about faith in an external source. He was very much talking about faith, really, ultimately, in oneself. And he talks about this in terms of, of it's an internal, internal quality, where faith in other religious traditions is externally focused, but faith in Buddhism is internally focused. And for the most part, uh, I agree. When we talk about faith in Buddhism, in my tradition, we talk about it in terms of, of sadha. You know, it, it does translate as faith, but it also translates as uh, confidence or conviction, let's say. And there is actually, in, in my tradition, an external uh, side to this faith, in the sense that we look to the Buddha as someone who really figured something out and really achieved something, that through his acts he really did become uh, liberated, unbound, free, that he did become a Buddha, an arahant, he became someone uh, noble, someone worth aspiring to be like, which gets to that other side of sadha. It gets to that other side of faith, conviction, confidence, which is having that, that faith in ourselves, the same faith that Venerable Tiktanan is talking about. Realizing that within ourselves we have a potential to, to achieve what the, the Buddha achieved. To not look at the Buddha 
in terms of his path as a, as a bodhisattva in the years and lifetimes, but years within his own lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama. Look at that as something supernatural, super normal, unachievable, but rather to see it as in that sense of here's someone who really put in the, the work, really tried to, to come to true knowledge and true vision of what release is and then actually become released, to become unbound, to become liberated, to become enlightened. And I love the, the part where Tiktianan talks about exactly that, that issue. He says that this path that we're on calls for relentless work, a long and difficult struggle within ourselves. Because it's difficulty, many people who begin abandon the way. Therefore, there are not many Buddhas in the world. This is why faith is so necessary. The first and most important thing is that we believe in our own latent capacity, that we believe in the seed of enlightenment within us, and that we do not abandon this faith no matter how many obstacles, internal or external, we meet on the way. Can we believe that we have the potential to become a Buddha? Why not? The Buddha was just a man like us. He had red blood and salty tears. His body and mind were not so very different from our own. Before his enlightenment, he had passions, worries, conflicts, and doubts. But through meditation, he cultivated himself and discovered his Buddha nature, thereby becoming a Buddha or enlightened one. We also, with all our problems, with all our weaknesses, with all our barriers, have the potential to become Buddhas. And so, you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh speaking as, as a, a Mahayana Buddhist is, you know, referring to Buddha nature and one becoming a Buddha. And, you know, a, a, in these different traditions, we'll, we'll often use different words and sort of have the same idea. Me coming from the forest tradition, I wouldn't talk about Buddha nature, but we would still be talking about the same potential to become awakened. We wouldn't say becoming a Buddha because a Buddha in, the, in my tradition, the forest tradition, simply means uh, someone who becomes an arahant in a time when there are no other arahants and basically had to rediscover the path themselves, which is what, what makes the Buddha a Buddha. You know, he, he, uh, he was able in his lifetime, in a, in a time when the Dharma had been forgotten, to rediscover the path and see it to its end and become awakened. And so he's what we call a Buddha. But in terms of what he attained, it's the same attainment that he and all of his disciples had. There are passages in the Pali Canon where the Buddha basically says that he himself is an arahant and all of his students who have achieved the goal are arahants and that's just what it means to be awakened. Mahayana has slightly different definitions on, on that issue. But when we talk about potentials, we're talking about the same potentials, the same potentials to be liberated. And having that, that confidence or conviction in, in ourselves is fundamental to the path. It is an essential part of the path because otherwise it does become difficult to keep practicing, to keep cultivating, to keep doing this every single day of our lives without that sense of purpose, to have a sense of why we're doing it in the first place. You know, without that, that strong sense of why and that strong sense, 
that strong belief in yourself, it might be hard to wake up at say 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning to, to sit in the cold and, and meditate if that's what you end up doing. I know some people might wait later in the day. But that, that push out of the bed, a lot of things can motivate us to do that. But faith can be a great motivator in that way. Confidence, conviction can be a great motivator in that way. To, to get those feet off the bed and onto the ground and get moving. Because you really believe in yourself. You believe that, that not only the path itself is, is one that, that transforms, that helps us cultivate, but that we ourselves can be cultivated. That we have great potential in us, in our hearts and in our minds. So faith becomes, uh, as, as said here by Venerable Titanan, an essential part of the path. Now, the second essential one, he calls great doubt. And I think the use of the word doubt is uh, a bit odd for me. I know that in, in Zen Buddhism, I've heard a lot of people talk about great doubt. And translating that in different ways as well, perhaps talking about it in terms of like not knowing. And that being a kind of um, admirable quality to like not to not know anything and to be like like very skeptical and some people take it another route and decide to be like very scientific, like everything's experimental and um, everything's a theory and stuff like that. And yeah, uh, that that phrase though, great doubt. I do admit to, to struggling with because in my tradition, doubt is actually seen as uh, a hindrance. When we go through the list of, of hindrances, one of them is bijikicha, uh, uh, right? It's, uh, it's, it, it gets, it's translated as doubt or uncertainty. And that in itself is actually a hindrance to development. So weird that we would use the word doubt. But I think doubt in this case just, be, just comes from um, the, perhaps the way Zen was translated into English and Tikkanan being someone who learned English sort of after the fact just took that term on as well because he makes a point of saying that he's not talking about doubt in that perhaps uh, negative sense, the sense that would be what we would call a hindrance. He says here, so the second step along the way of Zen is to inquire and to doubt everything until it is checked out. This second step is very helpful. Too much skepticism is not good at all. But there is skepticism and there is skepticism. There is a kind of skepticism which is rooted in a narrow mental outlook, which refuses to believe anything and takes a cynical delight in maintaining an attitude of negativity. And there is the healthy kind of skepticism, the skepticism which is a stepping stone on the road to deeper understanding. If we follow the first kind of skepticism, then we will doubt our own inner potentiality and our own capacity to attain the goal, as well as the efficacy of the practices which are designed to lead us to this goal. This kind of skepticism leads only to a dead end. But if we follow the broader kind of skepticism, keeping the mind open and critically examining things to determine whether they are right or wrong, that can be very, very helpful. So I think when he says here, critically examining, we're talking about what I would call not doubt, but 
actually something that is one of the seven factors uh, for awakening, dhamma uh, vichaya, vichaya being um, investigation. So that kind of curiosity, that that um, that investigative mind, is something that I guess we could translate as doubt. But I, I think it's it's better to look at this, yes, in terms of investigation. One way of, of looking at this that comes from the forest tradition is that when you're practicing the path, uh, you're uh, you're sort of uh, tasked with. They say this playfully. It's sort of like um, something to drive you to practice, which is uh, try to prove the Buddha wrong. Which sounds like a wild thing. It's one of those. It's one of those one lines that a you know that a, a forest monk will drop, and it makes everyone like, what? And really, what what it means to try to prove the Buddha wrong is that okay, the Buddha lays out the the, the four noble truths, and the the corresponding tasks duties with them, one of them being to develop the eightfold path. And the Buddha says that developing the Eightfold Path to its end is, is, the, is what leads to liberation, right? what leads to Nibbana. So trying to prove the Buddha wrong doesn't mean that on a philosophical level you just come up with better or more convincing arguments, probably more convincing arguments, more uh, tempting arguments, because that happens a lot. But actually putting it all into practice, it, it's sort of... Um, it's sort of like a reverse psychological move, you know? It's like, well, prove them wrong then. Go ahead and spend every day cultivating the path. Work on right speech. Work on, on right livelihood. Work on right view and, and sit in meditation. And like, all right, see if you prove them wrong. And uh, it, it can be a funny tactic because what it ends up doing is uh, getting someone to practice more diligently until that, that perhaps uh, that sort of doggedness gives way to something more pure, let's say. One of my teachers points out that early on, sometimes uh, spite is okay if it's a motivation to practice. You, you see someone over there sitting a little better than you. They look calm and serene. You're like, well, I can do it. I can be like them. I'll sit too and, you know, and sort, sort of uh, force it, if you will. And then eventually it's not something that's forced. It's a funny thing the way we, we play with the minds, with our mind, rather. You know, it's, it's something that uh, we think we're going to go in a direct way, and sometimes we have to really combat an issue from the side, from an angle. And there are playful ways of doing that. And investigation becomes uh, one way of doing precisely that, which is rather than giving in to the sort of doubt that would be a hindrance, because when we actually translate uh, vichikicca, it, it can not only mean doubt, in terms of practice it can mean hesitance. And I think that's, that's uh, a useful way to look at this. Not just ter in terms of, of sort of the mental aspect of doubt, where we just we have a lot of questions and we have a lot of uncertainty, and and uh, we, that kind of gives us really muddy goals in terms of the practice. But that what doubts end up leading to is hesitance. What that means is non-action, and the path that we develop as Buddhists is a path of action. And so we can see why hesitance, something that leads to inaction, is completely detrimental to the path. But investigation is useful because it means that not only do we have that kind of curiosity in trying to understand the path in terms of right view, but that that means that that same investigation becomes an internal process because then we're an analyzing the qualities of the mind, the qualities of the body, understanding this process that we have going on, these processes that we have going on. 
that's what leads to not just right view, but what ends up leading to wisdom, discernment. We have to investigate ourselves. That's, that's part of what we're doing here is, as meditators, when we sit down to meditate, we're not just simply sitting around enjoying a good feeling, but using whatever feelings arise, good or bad, to understand ourselves, to come to true wisdom. And yeah, that, that is a, a quality that um, one might say is a, a kind of scientific experimental quality, uh, you know, something like that. But um, in my tradition, we refer to it as investigation. And so that's, when I read Thich Nhat Hanh's work, I, I look, at, look at it from that angle. So now we come to the uh, third essential part of the path, which is great determination. And this part, I think, is one of the ones that uh, he thought was not necessarily the, the most important, but certainly the one that maybe he thought uh, Westerners were lacking. And this is me purely speculating just based off of what he wrote. He says here, it is generally very difficult for Western people to practice without looking for immediate results. When I was in Japan this past summer, a famous Zen master uh, uh, told me that recently two Western men had been studying Zen meditation under him. One stayed six months, one a year. Both of them expected shortcuts, and both wanted graduations when they left. The master explained to them, the way of Zen is not the way of a university. We do not set apart a certain period of time for study and then receive a graduation. The way of Zen is not a matter of months or years, but of a lifetime. Perhaps you may consider me a master, but I consider myself a student and still study and practice every day. And then Venerable Tietanan says, Western men are almost always in a hurry. When they come to Zen, they practice very hard at the beginning, but when they do not get quick results, they quit. So we must not expect shortcuts. If we look for shortcuts, we will not endure. So great determination, to me, sounds like, um, in, in Pali we call it vidya, which tra gets translated as energy, but it can also mean persistence. And persistence has a lot of similar qualities to uh, determination. So in this path, we're not only looking to be determined, we're looking to be persistent. And that has a quality of, of energy to it. There's a reason why Vidya is translated as, as energy. But I think persistence is useful when looking at what he was describing here, the kind of person who expects immediate results and who expects uh, shortcuts and who expects a lot of kind of laurels for, for you know, just sort of initially starting out on the path. And persistence uh, as a quality can help us temper that and recognize that uh, what we're doing, something that takes time, something that the Buddha called a gradual path. That's what he called this path we're developing. He called it a gradual one. And something that um, in the beginning works in, almost invisibly. A lot of the changes are, are small and in, imperceptible, but they are there. They are absolutely there. 
The Buddha called this path something that was good and admirable in the beginning and in the middle and in the end, meaning that all along the path there are fruits to be enjoyed, not necessarily the fruits of Nibbana, the fruits of awakening. Those happen at later stages, but even at the beginning there are fruits to enjoy. There are things that we're getting from the practice. But it's also important to recognize that what we get from the practice corresponds to what we give to it, which is why we need to be determined, why we need to be persistent, which means that we take this faith and confidence in ourselves and what we can develop, and we take this quality of investigation, and we marry them together in ourselves, that we, we have faith that these potentials exist, and we investigate to see where the potentials are and cultivate them. And we do this with a determined attitude. We use this path of action with great effort, great persistence. So those are the three essentials of Zen, Zen practice, as described by Venerable Thich Me reading those as a Theravada Buddhist, I also see them as essential. The qualities he's talking about are things that I see in, in other parts of the Pali Canon, other parts of Theravada teachings, other parts of the practice, in my own practice, seeing the importance of, of faith, seeing the importance of investigation, seeing the importance of persistence as foundational, as bedrock, as not just qualities that we, that we need to have in mind, essentials we need, have, we need to have in mind at the beginning of the path, but all throughout the path because these are part of the raft that we use to get to the other shore. Every part of the raft is important because we take any parts of the raft away, the, the structural integrity starts to, starts to fall away and the raft breaks up beneath us and then we get lost in the water. So with that in mind, we have this raft. We're trying to get to the further shore. It's a path of action. So. Uh, Hopefully what I've shared today is motivation that encourages, encourages us all to act. I can't tell you how many discourses in the Pali Canon and with the Buddha giving some great discourse and then reminding everyone there what it's for. He says, hey look, there's a tree, there's an empty building, go sit and meditate. You know, go cultivate, go practice. Uh, so that's a good reminder I think for all of us today. Thank you for listening. <laughs>